0: Hey there, it's Shannon Ballard. If you are new to Southern Mysteries, this is an independent, historical, true crime and mystery podcast. Thanks to passionate fans who support the show on Patreon, I'm able to share stories from Southern states and research stories you may not have heard or give you a unique take on the popular historical true crimes. You can help by joining Southern Mysteries on Patreon where you get a thanks for your support with access to the show's first three seasons of more than 60 episodes. Plus, you can support at a level where you can access patron-exclusive episodes, including Audacious, a patron-exclusive podcast featuring scandalous and shocking crimes in American history. You can learn all about supporting the show and join today to start listening to episodes you haven't heard before at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Hope you enjoy this Southern Mysteries classic that was originally featured in May 2020. One of the biggest news stories in October 1934 was the kidnapping of a wealthy young woman from Louisville, Kentucky. Headlines told of G-Men searching for the prime suspect, who demanded a $50,000 ransom for the woman's safe return. Seven days later, she would be set free, but her kidnapper remained on the run. Welcome to Southern Mysteries. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of the kidnapping of Alice Speed Stahl. The oldest museum of art in Kentucky is the Speed Art Museum in Louisville. Locals call it the Speed, but at the time of its construction in 1927, it was the J.B. Speed Memorial Museum, a memorial to Hattie Bishop Speed's husband, who was a prominent businessman, art collector, and philanthropist. The Speed name is associated with wealth and success, but the family name is also associated with one of the most captivating and terrifying stories of kidnapping of the 1930s, when J.B. and Hattie's granddaughter, Alice Speed Stahl, was kidnapped and held in captivity, fighting for her life in the fall of 1934. Alice Speed met her perfect match in Barry Stahl, an executive in his family's oil company, which included refineries and gas stations throughout Kentucky. Barry's father, Cece Stahl, was one of the richest men in Louisville. Alice and Barry were devoted to each other. When Alice was kidnapped from their Louisville mansion, Barry pleaded with her captor for her safe return and appeared on local radio broadcast each night she was gone, asking her captor to set her free. On October 10, 1934, Alice Stahl was home in bed, recovering from a cold when her maid and an unknown man rushed into her room. The man had posed as a telephone repairman. The maid allowed him to enter the home because there had been issues with phone lines. Once inside, the man had made small talk with the maid, asking about the family and who was home. He checked the downstairs phone line and then asked to check the upstairs line, which happened to be in the master bedroom with Alice Stahl. The maid knocked, tried to enter, but was pushed into the room with a gun to her back. A shocked Alice Stall asked why this man was in the house, and he replied he had come to kidnap her. Alice immediately tried to defuse the situation. She offered to write a check for any amount the man wanted, if he would just leave without hurting them. But the man said he had come to take a stall. He laid his gun on the bed while he reached in his pockets for wire he brought along to tie up his victim. That's when Alice attempted to grab the gun, and the kidnapper grabbed a pipe and hit her on the forehead. Alice continued to resist, tried to run from the room, but was hit again, fell to the ground, bleeding and disoriented. The kidnapper forced the maid to bind Alice's wrist with wire and made her tape Alice's mouth shut. He then tied up the maid's hands and feet and left her in the room. He forced Alice, at gunpoint, to walk outside and placed her in the backseat floor of his car and drove away. Hours later, Barry Stahl returned home to a disturbing scene. There was blood on the door of the home, and when he entered, he found the maid bound and gagged. Inside one of the upstairs rooms, he found a typewritten ransom letter that referenced the Stahl family and demanded $50,000 in cash for the safe return of his wife. The kidnapper threatened the life of Alice and also threatened Barry's brother, William, who was serving as the president of the family's oil business. The letter made it clear the person behind all of this was serious about harming someone. The letter warned if police were called in and money was not paid, the victim's body would be burned in a, quote, galvanized tank and the ashes scattered in water, and the tank would be cleaned as to defy detection. The letter further instructed that the ransom should be handed over to the kidnapper's intermediary, Thomas H. Robinson Sr. of Nashville, Tennessee, with instructions to drop off the money at an express rail station and await word from the kidnapper. Barry Stahl never hesitated to call in police, and soon city, county, and federal authorities were searching most of the state and searching for Alice just north, across the Ohio River, into Indiana. The following day, authorities released a statement from Barry Stahl. It was addressed directly to the kidnapper and read as follows. Barry Stahl just found the note regarding the ransom and arrangements are being made accordingly. As Barry, the FBI, and all of Louisville waited for any word on Alice, no reply came from the kidnapper for days. Here's the Stahl family spokesperson, William Kammer, addressing the media on October 12th and speaking directly to the kidnapper. We wish to be available at all times For contact, I trust that our sincerity and honesty of purpose in this regard is undoubted and will not be questioned. The kidnapper was not named, but the FBI knew who he was. Thanks to fingerprints found at the scene, they knew it was the son of the man who had been named intermediary. 27-year-old Thomas Robinson Jr. had a criminal record and a complicated background. Thomas Robinson, Jr. was born in Nashville in 1907 to a well-to-do family. His father was a successful engineer, and Thomas never wanted for a thing. He attended Vanderbilt University, where he studied law. When he was 20 years old, Robinson was forced to marry a woman he had been intimate with. Soon after, he learned she was already pregnant with another man's child, which gave Robinson grounds for divorce. But he claimed the embarrassment and scandal surrounding the whole ordeal led him to withdraw from law school and from all contact with his friends. He said the whole thing ruined his life. Robinson worked odd jobs for a while, worked for a lumber company for a few months, but was fired. In January of 1929, he met and married Francis Robinson and the two welcomed their first child later that year. But in March 1929, Robinson posed as a law enforcement officer, broke into a home, and stole jewelry and a car for his getaway. He then took out a loan at a local bank using the jewelry he had stolen as collateral. He was arrested and sent to Central State Hospital in Tennessee following a plea of insanity. He remained at the hospital until May, 1930, when his father brought lunacy proceedings against him. A judge ruled he was of unsound mind and was committed to Western State Hospital, where his father told him he could get fresh air, sunshine, a little exercise. He remained at that hospital until his father was appointed his guardian in August of 1930 and assumed full responsibility for his welfare. Court records show that doctors who examined Thomas Robinson Jr. found he suffered from delusions, with a doctor writing the following to the court: He knows right from wrong as any normal person would, but he's just one of those people that cannot resist the temptation of doing wrong, committing crimes, and hurting others. Robinson spent the next few months in his parents' home. While there, He threatened to kill his father, hit his mother, and grew increasingly paranoid and jealous of his wife, Frances. His father tried to help him find a job, which proved difficult because he had become violent at work and lost every job he took on, was often fired on the same day he was hired. Over the next two years, Robinson held jobs in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana, working in different plants and gas stations. Mr. Robinson Sr. used his connections with wealthy businessmen, and in 1934, he took his son to see C.C.C. Stahl, the president of the Stahl Refining Company, and begged him to give his son a chance. C.C. Stahl agreed and gave the young man a job managing one of his filling stations. Robinson remained on the job for about a year before he quit. Months later, when he was applying for work and finding it hard to get a job, Robinson began to blame C.C. Stahl for his troubles. He claimed Stahl was a powerful man who was trying to keep him out of the workforce and referred to C.C. Stahl as a, quote, powerful capitalist and a menace to the country responsible for the Great Depression. In the summer of 1934, Thomas Robinson Jr. drove to Indianapolis and rented an apartment under the name of Thomas Kennedy. He planned to kidnap CeCe Stall or his son Barry when he arrived at the Stall home on October 10th. But when he learned Alice was the only Stall in the house, he took her instead. As the feds searched for Alice and her kidnapper, she was being held in that apartment in Indianapolis was held there for seven days. Throughout that week, Alice was nauseous and in pain from the blows to her head. When she was allowed to lie down, she had to sleep in a bedroom that had twin beds. When Robinson was ready to sleep, he tied Alice's hands to the springs on either side of the bed so she could not shift her position. He tied a cord from her wrist to his so that as he slept in the other bed, He would know if she made any move. Robinson kept the apartment shades down at all times, and when he left to make a phone call or buy food, he tied Alice to a chair in a closet and locked her inside, often hitting her if she resisted being locked in. She was in the closet several times a day and was never left alone, even when she went to the bathroom. He would sit on the other side of the door, holding a gun on her. Early in her captivity, Alice found Robinson to be nervous, but talkative. She described him as being an intelligent man who had obvious maniacal tendencies, which led her to try to calm the situation by talking to him about all kinds of things, like math, communism, religion, anything he was willing to talk about. Each day, Alice would be locked in the closet while Robinson left to make phone calls. He grew more and more impatient and seemed to be near a breaking point. He would hit Alice when he was frustrated and told Alice that if the ransom wasn't met, if her family double-crossed him, he wouldn't hesitate to kill her. And Alice believed him. Authorities believed him. Press reports show police searching the Stall property and the surrounding area for Alice Stahl's body, because with each passing day, there were real concerns that Alice Stahl was dead. Robinson had taken Alice on a Wednesday. As Barry Stahl and the family worked on the cash ransom demands and waited for instructions on delivery, Alice was forced to write letters. The first was written on Saturday and addressed to Dear Mr. Intermediary. Robinson forced Alice to enclose her wedding ring as proof of life. He instructed Alice to tell the intermediary, his father, Thomas Robinson Sr., that once he received the $50,000 from the stalls, he was to hand it over to Francis Robinson, who would receive instructions on how to proceed. The second letter was written on Sunday and addressed to Barry Stall. Alice wrote that she was unharmed apart from a cut and instructed Barry that a woman would now be delivering the money directly to the kidnapper. If anyone followed her or interfered in any way, Alice would be killed. Once the letters were received and instructions were clear, Barry Stahl obtained $50,000 in the specific bills Robinson had demanded, 10 and $20 bills. Once the feds recorded the serial numbers for the money, The ransom was transported to Nashville by FBI agents. The money was delivered to the office of Thomas Robinson Sr.'s attorney on Monday, October 15th, and then turned over to Frances Robinson, who made the drive to Indianapolis to deliver the money to her husband. FBI agents initially tailed Frances Robinson, but they lost her well before she made it to Indianapolis. Once she arrived at the apartment, Francis begged her husband to take the $50,000 and just run. But when she refused to go with him, he stayed in the apartment. Alice Stahl was tied up, put in the closet, and listened as Francis and Thomas Robinson, Jr. argued over her fate, whether she would die. Francis maintained that Thomas had the money. He was free to leave. There was no need to hurt Alice anymore. But Thomas insisted it would be better to shoot her and leave her in the closet. Francis was eventually able to convince Thomas to leave with a majority of the ransom money. He left a little behind for his wife and child. Once Thomas was gone, Francis led Alice to a nearby drugstore where she called for a cab. Now, Francis knew if she accompanied Alice... To the drop-off location her husband had picked, she would be taken into custody, but she refused to leave Alice's side. Thomas Robinson Jr. had read that one of Barry Stahl's cousins and her husband lived in Indianapolis and had guaranteed the family that once ransom was paid, Alice would be dropped off at the home of Reverend and Mrs. Clegg. Alice had never met Mrs. Clegg. In fact, she very kindly and properly introduced herself when Mrs. Clegg opened the door and welcomed her in. Alice used the Cleggs' phone to call home. When there was no answer, she called a family friend and asked her to inform Barry that she was free and would be home that evening. The Cleggs then offered to drive Alice back to Louisville and within an hour were met on the road by the FBI who escorted them back to Kentucky. Alice was quiet most of the way home, not speaking of her experience, and the Cleggs knew not to press her with questions. The only thing Alice mentioned along the ride was that she was looking forward to seeing Barry and how beautiful the scenery was on that long drive home. It was obvious to Barry Stahl that Alice was shaken and injured when she returned home, Barry would describe his wife as being in, quote, horrible shape, saying her lips were drawn and bleeding from where the tape had been, and her lips were raw. There was blood all over her forehead, and she was completely unnerved and completely shattered. Once Alice was safely home, the FBI assigned an agent to guard each member of the Stahl family. They were concerned that Thomas Robinson Jr. would return to try to harm them. Robinson became one of the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives under the Lindbergh Kidnapping Act, which stated that if the victim of a kidnapping was injured, the perpetrator could face the death penalty. While Robinson Jr. remained on the run, authorities arrested Thomas Robinson Sr. and Francis Robinson. Both were indicted on October 20th and charged with conspiracy to kidnap Alice. They faced trial together with Alice Stahl telling the court that Francis Robinson did not harm her. In fact, Alice said she believed she was alive because Francis Robinson refused to leave her when Thomas wanted to shoot her. It was also revealed in court that Thomas Robinson Sr. had initially refused to be involved as an intermediary, saying he wanted nothing to do with his son and the crime. The Stalls begged him to move forward because they needed his help to pay the ransom and get Alice home safely. In the end, Robinson Sr. and Francis were acquitted. Thomas Robinson Jr. remained on the run for nearly two years. One big mistake afforded him the luxury of that time on the run with the ransom money. When serial numbers from the ransom were published, there was an error in the order, which meant that when Robinson bought a new car and drove across the country several times, he spent the ransom money without raising alerts of any kind on the part of the folks he was paying or the banks handling the money. The serial numbers didn't match the ones that had been published and associated with the crime. Thomas Robinson Jr., one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, was able to travel across the country staying in fine hotels like the Waldorf Astoria and Ritz-Carlton. He threw away a lot of money on betting at racetracks and in nightclubs. In his own words, he threw away money left and right. And it wouldn't be the money that led the FBI to Thomas Robinson Jr. It would be his habit of dressing in women's clothing and visiting drugstores. He had done this several times but it would be a man working the soda fountain at a drugstore in Glendale, California, in May of 1936, who noticed this customer was trying to appear as a female, but was in fact a man. A man who seemed kind of familiar, like one of the men on the FBI posters he had seen. He called the police, who notified the FBI. They tracked the man to a Glendale hotel where they moved in and arrested Thomas Robinson, Jr., who at the time of his arrest had in his possession a pistol and a little over $2,000 left from the $50,000 ransom. The one-time law student chose to serve as his own attorney, and on May 13, 1936, Robinson was extradited to Louisville and arraigned on kidnapping charges. He agreed to plead guilty to escape a death penalty trial and was sentenced to life in prison. For the next seven years, Thomas Robinson Jr. was incarcerated at Leavenworth and then Alcatraz, where he worked on appeals. Eventually, his case reached the U.S. Supreme Court, and Robinson was granted a new trial. A risky move, considering he would go from life in prison to death row if things didn't go his way throughout his retrial in 1943 Robinson tried to downplay the kidnapping of Alice stall and said their time together in the apartment it was calm he described it as friends just spending time together listening to the radio reading the newspaper and having long talks about all kinds of things Robinson claimed Alice stall didn't seem ill or injured to him and seemed to take the whole affair in stride, as if it was all just a joke. He claimed she never even tried to get away from him. But the state used Thomas Robinson Jr.'s own words against him, reading the transcript of his confession when he was captured in California. He admitted to acts of violence and injury against Alice, which made him eligible for death under federal law. Robinson then told agents he had used a lead pipe to beat Alice into submission because she resisted him. In the end, Robinson's words sealed his fate. His retrial ended with a guilty verdict and a death sentence. Following an appeal, his sentence was upheld and Thomas Robinson Jr. was set to be executed on June 8, 1945. While Robinson sat on death row, he never imagined the death of a president would save his life. In April 1945, President Franklin Roosevelt died suddenly, and his vice president, Harry Truman, took office. Just 33 hours before Thomas Robinson Jr. was scheduled to be executed, President Truman commuted his sentence from death to life in prison. Robinson remained at Alcatraz for a few years before he was transferred to a minimum security prison in Florida. Minimum security being the key words because Thomas Robinson escaped from the prison work detail in 1962, and he did it again in 1965 after he was denied parole. After serving 35 years in prison, Robinson was set free, released on parole in 1970. The former public enemy number one returned to Tennessee, where he remained until his death in 1994. Alice and Barry Stahl remained in Louisville, with Alice living a quiet life focused on her passions, which included arts, horses, and gardening. Every winter the Stahls traveled to Grand Cayman, where they spent months on their farm and beach property in paradise it's where Barry Stahl died in 1983. We can only imagine that Alice Stahl was haunted by what happened to her in 1934. She survived a violent kidnapping and captivity with a madman. You can't escape the memories of a crime like that, but Alice Stahl's life was not defined by it. Stella Adler wrote that Life beats down and crushes the soul, and art reminds you that you have one. Perhaps that's one of the many reasons Alice was so passionate about art. When she died in Louisville in 1996, she was 90 years old. Alice bequeathed more than $50 million to the Speed Museum. The bequest, one of the 25 largest endowments in the country, secured the museum's future. Following her kidnapping, Alice Stahl set about living the life that was almost taken from her. Her family said she rarely spoke of what happened. She decided to let that dark chapter of her life fade into the background and leaned into the light of hope, which was Art and her family.